throughout the year is to study through the book of Judges and talk about some things that are there, but also not just talk about the stories, learn the lessons that we can learn from them. When last we talked together, we were talking about Jephthah, a man who's very interesting in his own right. We know that he was a, an outcast among his own people. He was a person that was really looked down upon even by his family because he was the son of a prostitute. And not only was he an outcast for, from his family, but his town had rejected him. He became a great leader, though, and his town wanted him to come back. He does come back. He does make a deal with them. They do begin to look up to him because he leads them against their foe and wins the battle. But he had made a vow, as you remember, that was quite not uh, very smart at all. Uh, It was quite rash, and it involved his daughter. He didn't intend for it to. He just simply said, God, if you will deliver these people into my hands... He said, whatever comes out of my house first, that I will offer to you, that I will give to you, dedicate to you, and sacrifice if it was appropriate. Now, we're not going to go back and talk about that tonight, but as we think about Jephthah, there's yet one other thing that we need to look at, one other scene that's mentioned in the Word of God relating to him. And we want to talk about that tonight out of chapter number 12, the first seven verses of Judges chapter number 12. As we think about it tonight, we'll simply begin by saying that the Ephraimites, they rise up against Jephthah and the Gileadites. They have a problem with them. As we think about what is said here in this particular passage, we'll note in verse number 1 what the Bible has to say. The Bible says the men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. As we think about what is said here, we need to ask the question, first of all, who are the Ephraimites? Who are the men of Ephraim? Now, you probably already know that uh, who they are, but let's just go back for a moment and do some reviewing and possibly add something that you may not have thought about or that you may not have noticed before. As we think about the Ephraimites or the men of Ephraim, we know that Ephraim was the second son of Joseph, according to what the Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter number 41 beginning at verse number 50 and going through verse number 52, we understand that Joseph had two sons. The older of the sons' name was Manasseh, and the younger of the sons was Ephraim. And so when we look, we see that there are the two sons. Now, when you notice, if you were to pull up a map of the twelve tribes of Judah and the land that was divided among them, You know that Joseph is the son of Jacob or the son of Israel, but there is no tribe of Joseph. You you can search in vain. There's no land that's called the land of Joseph. But the house of Joseph itself is given land among all of their brethren, but it's given to his sons. And so there's a tribe that is known as the tribe of Ephraim and a tribe that's known as the tribe of Manasseh. And so Joseph and his descendants, as important as he was, 
didn't have a tribe named after him, but it's his house is taken care of through his sons and the names that are given there. But again, when we think about what is said in this passage and how it relates, we'll understand that the Gileadites, the people that Jephthah is leading, they are residents within the tribe of Manasseh. And so a little bit later on, it's going to come more into play, but they're residents of the tribe of Manasseh. If anybody ought to have been close, it should have been the tribes of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, them being cousins, you know, even closer, if you will, than the rest of the other ten tribes. But we have them, Ephraim and Manasseh, and there's now a problem between these two men. When we think about Ephraim itself, next to Judah, Ephraim is probably the strongest tribe of the twelve tribes. Later on, if you, and especially if you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've studied through the Minor Prophets, there were times when the, the northern kingdom was referred to as Ephraim. You got Judah and Ephraim, and there was a reason for that because of the strength of Ephraim itself. And so as we look at it, we see that they, they had this strength, or at least they portrayed this strength, but where did it come from? What gave them the notion that they should have it? That's where we go back again to the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis chapter 48, beginning at verse 17, we find the, the life of, of Jacob as it's coming to an end. He's nearing the end of his life. Israel, as he was called by God. And the Bible says in verse 17, beginning of Genesis 48, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. You see, Jacob is giving his grandsons a blessing. That was the way that it was done back in those days. You'll remember that, uh, that both uh, 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 Jacob and Esau went to their father, uh, Isaac, and he presented to them their uh, blessings, their birthright, near the end of his life. And so we have the same thing happening here except to the sons of Joseph. It's a grandfather to grandson. The Bible says in verse 18, Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, Manasseh is the firstborn. Since this one is the firstborn, put your hand, right hand, on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Going all the way back to the days that Ephraim and Manasseh were little boys. And Grandpa Joseph was placing his hands, and there's a picture here, it seems that he's crossing things up. He, he calls Ephraim, and again, by God's help, the way Joseph was able to do that, he calls Ephraim great. He says he's going to be greater 
than Manasseh. And so can you imagine from that day forward how Ephraim must have felt and what he must have said to his own descendants and the lessons that he must have taught them about Grandpa Joseph, how that he blessed him and said, we're greater than our cousins over here who are of the tribe of Manasseh. And so it may have been that through the years, this, this idea, this, this forethought that was planted in them, that it continued to, to hold a, a place within the entire tribe, even though now decades and centuries had passed in, since the time that all of this had taken place. But we're dealing with that still in this time. We're dealing with, with, it seems, the fact that not only was Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, a strong tribe, but it seems that there may well have been some of that jealousy that was there all the time. As we look and continue on tonight, they want to know, why did you go without us? That's basically the question that they ask when they come against Jephthah and the men of Gilead. It seems that the Ephraimites may have borne that jealousy that had, uh, had roots perhaps in decades and, and centuries before, perhaps even before the time that, uh, that the, there was a tribe, but now had spread throughout the tribe. What we need to understand tonight is this. Jealousy is a deadly sin, isn't it? It's a deadly sin even to our day. Just how deadly is it? Well, let's look at two passages of Scripture from the Bible. The first one is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. We quote this passage a number of times because it contains what it describes as the works of the flesh. And notice how Paul begins it. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. He said, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, And then almost right in the middle of this passage, he puts that term, jealousy. And then he goes on and he mentions several other things. But all of these things put together, he is warning them about and says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It goes without saying tonight that jealousy itself is a deadly sin because it'll cost a person his or her soul. It's not the only New Testament passage that deals with it. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. I have verse 14 and following up here. But beginning in verse 13, James, the brother of our Lord, writes and says, Who is the wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness, in the meekness of wisdom. But, <coughs> but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He goes on in verse 16 and says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When I think about what is said here in the book of James chapter 3, I think back to this time in the book of Judges, to the tribe of Ephraim. You see, Ephraim seems to be a perfect example of what James is warning against. When we think about them, they had that status that they thought that they were to have. They didn't want to earn it. They wanted to take it. They come by force in order to get it. And they come against their own brethren, their own uh, people, uh, their cousins, if you will. And they try to force them because it seems that they have some jealousy about maintaining their status that they're supposed to have. It just plays out, doesn't it? We have this jealousy and this selfish ambition that didn't come from God. That wasn't what uh, Joseph meant when he was blessing little boy Ephraim so long before. He wasn't telling him that things were to be done this way. But somewhere along the way, things have gotten messed up. And they're an Old Testament illustration of what James talks about in the New Testament. This jealousy and selfish ambition. And it's going to be a costly thing, especially for this particular tribe. You see, when we think about what is said here later in this chapter, we understand that this, this jealousy and this selfish ambition that, that Ephraim has is going to have to be dealt with. And it's going to be dealt with in a very tragic way in the book of Judges, chapter number 12, as we'll see in just a moment. But come back to present day. Who becomes jealous today? In our own time, is it possible for people to to have jealousy? Well, certainly it is. Sometimes boyfriends or girlfriends or husbands or wives or workers or co-workers... They all can become jealous of others. And so you have families and you have those who are close to families and those who should be friends who are jealous of one another and as a result of that, bad things happen. Sometimes, you know, you have jealous politicians because one, one politician is getting more power and more glory and so bad things happen among politicians. But it's not limited just to boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives and co-workers and politicians. Sometimes even Christians have jealousy for one another. And it manifests itself in a number of ways. Sometimes there are brothers in Christ who preach the gospel who seemingly have a problem with jealousy because someone is preaching at a larger congregation. Or they're baptizing more people. Or or for some other reason, they have built a name within the church, not that they were seeking to do that. And someone tries his best, perhaps, to tear that person down. And and there are, are things that are written and things that are said that are damaging, not just to the person, but to the Lord's church. And so we need to be careful about that. And it's not just preachers, is it? Sometimes, even within congregations, people become jealous because somebody gets more attention. 
than somebody else. Their name is mentioned in the bulletin, and, and my name didn't get mentioned in the bulletin, and I get my feelings hurt. Well, what is the stem root of the feelings being hurt? Jealousy because somebody else had their name mentioned. And you see, there are problems that arise even in congregations. And people begin sometimes to take sides. And congregations of the Lord's people have been split asunder because somebody's name didn't get printed in the bulletin. How tragic. Can we, and how petty can we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, become? You see, these people who are, we're talking about here are teaching us something about that. How that we should not be guilty of jealousy. And if we are guilty of jealousy in any of the realms, whether it be in a relationship that we have with a, a person that we're perhaps dating or a husband-wife relationship or a co-worker relationship or a political relationship or even a Christian relationship, we need to stop it before something bad happens. As Paul described back in the first passage that we read from the book of Galatians, one loses his or her soul. We need to be very careful in regard to that, don't we? Well, what did these people, these Ephraimites, do in this case? I want you to think about it. As we look at these things, we'll see them come into play. What did they do in, in this case? Well, they came armed for battle. Uh, if you noted there in chapter number 1, they uh, made up the army. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, the Bible says, in uh, Judges chapter 12 at verse number 1. And they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you do this? You see, they were just like the Ammonites that Gilead and their leader Jephthah had just defeated. When we go back into the book of Judges, we find that the Ammonites, they had sent their army. And they were trying to go in and invade and, and take things that did not belong to them. But now here are the Ephraimites, who come across onto the eastern side of the Jordan River. They have left home, gone across the Jordan River... And now, not only did they just come and send an emissary to have a discussion about it, they came with the army to get things settled right now. And so they came to arm for battle. But number two, they were against their own brothers. We've already mentioned that. Folks, it's called what we would call a civil war that's about to break out between these two. We think about the Civil War, and it's our own Civil War that we had here in our country back in the 1860s. But there have been Civil Wars in other places as well. And when we describe it, describe it as a Civil War, it's anything but civil, isn't it? Things, bad things do happen. But when brothers come against brothers, it doesn't always end happily, does it? In the case, same thing is done here. But not only did they come armed for battle and they come against their own brothers to incite a civil war, they come making false accusations. What do you mean by that? 
Well, they said, you didn't call us. You remember? Why did you go across and fight the Ammonites and didn't call us to help? Back in chapter 12 at verse number 1. Well, is that a true statement or is it a false statement? Look at verse 2. The Bible says, Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you didn't save me from their hand. Jephthah disputes their uh, statement that you didn't call us, you didn't ask us for our help, you didn't get our opinion, you didn't, you didn't come to us. Jephthah said, when I called you, you didn't come. You sat there and didn't do anything. Now that's not the first time the tribe of Ephraim has done that. Back in chapter 8, I think it is, we read about uh, another great hero of the Old Testament, a man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon calls Ephraim to come and to help him to fight against the Midianites. And what do they do? They wait until Midian has won the battle, and then they go help do some mopping up, if you will. They capture a couple of kings, and, and uh, Gideon, he sort of appeases them by saying, Oh, you know, you've come against us, but y'all, you probably have done more by catching the kings than we did in defeating the whole army. And that wasn't the way it was, but that's the way that Gideon had handled it long before. But they make these false accusations. They seem to have a habit of doing that. And they come this time doing it again. But here's another thing they do. It seems that they somewhat exalted themselves to the position that Gideon, or rather that Jephthah and the Gileadites should have been asking them for their help, or at least asking them if they should have gone against the Ammonites. And again, you have evidence of that back earlier in the book of Judges as well. In verse number 3 of this chapter, notice what the Bible says. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up against me or to me this day to fight against me? You see, it wasn't the Ephraimites that Jephthah needed the permission from. And it wasn't even the Ephraimites that Jephthah needed the help from. Jephthah needed the permission and the help from God. And Jephthah got the permission and the help from God. But the Ephraimites now, after having the situation remedied, and God delivering this group of people into the hands of, of Jephthah, they come over and say, you didn't invite us to the party. You didn't ask us. You didn't have us to come with you. Are they somewhat exalting themselves to the place of God? Think about that for a minute. With God's help, Jephthah took the battle. He didn't need them, but now they were, they were really ill about it. They are exalting themselves, in a sense, to the place of God. We have to be careful about that when we try to make rules that God hasn't made, when we try to enforce things that God hasn't uh, laid out in His Word. We do like the Ephraimites. And so we need to be very, very careful 
in our own lives in regard to that. But not only have they done all of these previous things, they threaten an innocent man. All the way back to verse number 1, what did they say we're going to do with you, Jephthah? We're going to burn your house. But Jephthah, we're not just going to burn your house. We're going to burn your house with you in it. We'll burn your house on top of you. They're threatening a man who had no reason to be threatened. They're threatening an innocent man. And so here are five things that they did that were wrong. Coming armed for battle against their own brethren and making false accusations, exalting themselves to a place that they didn't deserve and then threatening this innocent man. Now, if somebody came to you and began to make accusations and and you know they're ready to fight, how would you react? What would be your reaction to, to somebody who did to you what these people did to Jephthah and the Gileadites? Well, that's the next thing that we need to look at, isn't it? How did they react? What was the reaction of both Jephthah and the Gileadites to what these Ephraimites, their own kinfolks, had done? Well, Jephthah at first uses some restraint, doesn't he? In verses 2 and 3, he, he asks them the question, you know, I and my people, he says, we had great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you didn't come. Verse 3, when I saw that you wouldn't save me, I, I went ahead and took my life in my own, own hands. Why did you come to fight with me now? He uses some restraint. He doesn't just jump into the, uh, to them, you know, and, and begin accusing them as they accuse him falsely. Jephthah answers their charge. We did call you, back in verse number 2. And he answers their charge about the fact that they, you know, calling us by saying, well, God is the one who's done the delivering. And so he's answering with this restraint. But not only does he do that, Jephthah gives them some time and opportunity to, to turn aside, to, to make things right. He, he, he makes it possible for them to say, oh, well, we were mistaken. Turn around and go home. Makes it possible for them to do that. But they didn't. In showing the restraint at the beginning, he gave them time to do that. But they didn't. They still wanted to fight. How do I know? Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You're fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. A couple of things that I want to point out here. I want you to note that the Bible says at the beginning of this verse that he gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. I mentioned he gave them some time and opportunity. He gave them the opportunity to begin with by answering their charges. But you see, it didn't just happen overnight, likely, that he got the men, the, his own army, together. He had to send messengers. He had to gather up these people. And all of this time, the army of Ephraim could have decided, let's go home. Let's go home. This is wrong. Let's solve this problem and go home. But they didn't. And so as we look at it, we see this battling uh, force from, uh, from Ephraim who's come over against them. And Ephraim 
fights against them. They even, the Ephraimites even make a further charge. You're fugitives. You don't even belong here. But Ephraim is defeated by Jephthah and his army. Jephthah wins this battle, just like he had won the previous battle with the Ammonites. But we're not finished. You see, for the treachery that these people had come with, they needed to be punished. And that's what we find in the next couple of verses here in the book of Judges, chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? Let's stop right there for a moment. Earlier, when uh, the Ephraimites had come against Gideon, one of the things that they had done was captured the fords of the river Jordan so that when the kings were fleeing, the Midianite kings were fleeing, or anyone else was fleeing, they could, they could catch them and win the battle. Well, this time, Jephthah is a step ahead of them, and so he captures the fords. And when the Ephraimites, who are now defeated, when they decide that it's time for them to go running home, they don't have a way to get home unless they go through where Jephthah and his men are stationed, the fords of the river, a place where they could cross the Jordan River. And so now, something's going to happen. They ask the question, are you an Ephraimite? And the people are expected to answer. They'll say yes. You know that they're going to say yes. But Jephthah's going to say, well, we're going to need a little proof. We need you to... to make sure that you're not just telling us that. And so what happens? They said to him, then say Shibboleth. And the Ephraimite would say, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Let's think about what's happening here. You ever heard the phrase, uh, you ain't from around here, are you? How many of you ever heard that phrase? You know, if a southerner goes north or a northerner goes south, one or the other of them is going to say, you ain't from around here, are you? Likely the southerners are going to say that, that statement. You're not from around here, are you, sir? If That may be from the north. Down here in the south, you ain't from around here, are you? Why? What's one of the dead giveaways? The way we speak. We have different accents, don't we? And sometimes those northern folks who can't talk you know, they come down here and make fun of us. Now, I can talk about the northern folks. I was born up there, but I was raised down here, okay? So I learned quick. But think about that for a minute. Even if someone from Boston goes to the north or to the south, what's going to happen to them? You ain't from around here, are you, son? You know, their accent is much different from everybody else's. How many of you have ever watched the movie? It's getting this time of year. You know, there's a movie called A Christmas Story. Now, Ralphie, you know, he wants the perfect Christmas present, that Red Ryder BB gun. He goes through all of the exploits in the movie to get his Red Ryder BB gun. They get to Christmas Day. They, they're planning on having a big meal, and the Bumpus' dogs, they come running in and get the, get the turkey. So what does the family do? They go to the Chinese restaurant. And, of course, they're in the Chinese restaurant... 
that it's open on Christmas Day, and the Chinese waiters come out in order to sing a song for them. Anybody remember the song? Deck the har with bear of hari, fa-ra-ra-ra-ra. They can't pronounce the L. What we have here, there's people in certain places who can't pronounce, there's a name, a technical name for it. People in certain places, Asian folks, don't have, the way I understand it, the letter L in their language, and so they don't hear that. Something has taken place in the way that these people are speaking. On the eastern side of the Jordan River and on the western side of the Jordan River, between the cousins, one says it one way and one can't say it. Now, when he asked them to say shibboleth, what he's asking them to say is uh, the head of a grain of corn or the head of a grain of wheat. That's what a shibboleth is. But they couldn't say a shibboleth. They said a sibboleth. And a sibboleth is a great torrent of water, a great flood of water, something totally different in the language. Now, we're pronouncing it in the English. They're, they were to pronounce it in the Hebrew tongue back then, and so it's not exactly the way that we see it here. But it's sort of ironic that here at the river where they could cross and go back home, they can't even say that it's a good crossing place. It's a sibboleth. It's a place where the water is running. And as a result of their not being able to pronounce it, Jephthah and his men slaughter the Ephraimites, those who would cross over. 42,000 of them lose their life. 42,000. That's not my words, that's what God said. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. You know, if that doesn't teach me anything, it teaches me one thing, words matter. Words matter, don't they? Look at five passages from the Word of God. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life in the power of the tongue. Words, they matter. Here's another one from the New Testament, Matthew 5, verse 37. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this is okay if you want. No, he said everything more than this comes from evil. Keep your word. Make your word. Keep your word. Here's another one, Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Words matter, don't they? Here's one from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgressions are not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. <coughs> Ever known someone who just cannot keep his or her mouth shut? When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Here's one, though, you might want to remember very carefully. 
He, Jesus, answered, it's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, it's not just our words that matter, it's God's words that matter as well. And we need to be keenly aware of the words that God speaks to us. Words matter because if we fail to obey the words that God speaks to us, we will be lost because we'll be judged by those words. And so tonight, as we think about it, words matter. They couldn't say the word. It made a difference to them whether they could pronounce it right or not. But to us, it's not whether we can actually say shibboleth or sibboleth. Words matter. As we come to the conclusion tonight, look at Judges chapter 12 at verse number 7. The Bible simply says, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died, was buried in the city of Gilead. There's no condemnation by God for what Jephthah does to the Ephraimites as they cross over, those 42,000 people. God didn't say, well, Jephthah, you should have let them go. They're going home. You've already beat them. You see, God recognized the treachery of the Ephraimites. But one other passage that I want you to take note of tonight before we quit, and we noticed this when we studied Jephthah before, in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible uses Jephthah as one of the, speaks of Jephthah as being one of those who are faithful. The writer says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. And then notice those next highlighted words. Enforced. Justice. Obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and so forth. In the context of Jephthah being mentioned, one of the things that said is they enforced justice. Was it right what these Ephraimites had done in crossing the river? Was it right fueled by self-ambition and jealousy to come against their brethren? No. And just as the book of James in the New Testament tells us that there are vile things that happen, bad things that happen, so it was that they did in these days. Justice, though, seems to have been enforced even by a man by the name of Jephthah. What lessons we learn when we study the books of the Old Testament and look at them in light of not just a story, but in light of the lessons that they teach us to help us understand better what you and I need to be here in this life. Let's close our lesson tonight by doing that. We simply say this. It's, this lesson, of course, hasn't been an evangelistic type lesson. Someone may understand that because they'll be judged by the words of God, they want to be obedient to them. The words which teach us about Jesus, the words that have been spoken, we believe them. 
because we have understood that we're sick with sin, we would want to repent, make the great confession, and be baptized for the remission of our sins tonight. Maybe that there's one or more here that needs to do that. Don't leave this place without it. Maybe tonight that something stands between you and God that you need to make right. If that is the case, and you need to come, do it right now as together we stand and sing.